So in choosing the hymns for this morning's service, um, I tried to make them as relevant as I could, and there are just so many which uh, have the great theme of worship and of glorifying God, um, because that is so much of what, of what this psalm is about. Um, I, I wasn't going, well, because Richard wasn't going to be here this morning, I just talked to him about his psalm, 65, last week, um, as we're driving back from the Lake District together, and I told him... Um, that this seems to sort of um, start from surveying creation and the world as a whole and then zooming in into the individual. And he said, well, his psalm seems to go the other way. It seems to start with the individual and kind of move outwards. So um, let's see uh, if that, um, how that works today. So um, I don't know about you, but I just love Google Earth. I just love playing and sort of doodling around with it. Um, and um, it sort of turns like that. And you can just type any random place in that you've been to or would like to go to and it kind of zooms in. You can always hear the whoosh, you know, as it's kind of zooming in. Um, but way before Google Earth, I used to love, like, obviously, like, Nature Programs or adverts, which sort of started off in outer space and then sort of zoomed in. I don't know how they did it without CGI and stuff, and sort of would sort of zoom in on, like, a leaf and a, and a kind of a drop of rain or dew, whatever, and it was just that, that sort of that moving in from the macro to the micro, which used to really fascinate me and still does in some ways. So... Um, so you just type in you know, any address you like on, on uh, Google Earth, there it is. Um, and uh, I happen to doodle around with Bethel, okay? And, um, well, the church hall, well, there's the community centre here, and there it is. And it's kind of whooshing in. Got to be quick to get a, uh, a screen grab because it's moving in quite quickly. And then here we are. And I thought, ooh, who's the red, who's the red panda is that? Uh, yeah. So I say that. And, and, and who's Volkswagen is that? And actually, if you pan around a little bit, it, uh, actually, I think it shows you old Skoda. So maybe it's taken on a, on a Sunday morning, and that's, that's obviously the haters, and I believe that's probably your old car, is it? No? Yep. Yeah, probably, I think so. So um, that's, I thought that's even more appropriate. That's actually zooming in, not just, you know, Ockley as a whole, or even the building as a whole, um, but even our cars as well. So um, I thought that was really, that was really uh, good. So um, the theme of this uh, psalm really is... Uh, God, the God of all, of many, and of, on, and of the one, of the individual, and you uh, probably picked it up as we um, read the Psalm 20 verses. Um, it's in um, five verses, or five stanzas, um, or strophes, um, to give it more, a bit more of a technical term. Three of them end with Selah, um, exact meaning of Selah, not really known, but I think it's a bit like an Amen. Um, so there are, there are these sort of five sections of, of the Psalm. And I'll just have a look at those um, with you um, in a bit more detail. So, bearing in mind the God of the all, of the many, and, and of the one. And um, I'll, I'll forget to move on to the slides if I make them all individual. So, <laughs> just put them all up now, um, get them out of the way, so I don't forget. Um, I remember when I kept Donald Trump's face up. Do you remember that other evening service? Because I forgot to move it on. And he was, his big orange face was beaming at you all, all through the service. Um, so I've just got these five points up, um, just so I don't forget. So the first, the first strophe or the first um, stanza, the first four verses. I'm not going to go through verse by verse, um, but um, let's just read again that um, that section. And, and I've called it a world's homage to God, where the psalmist writes, "Shout for joy to God, all the earth! Sing the glory of His name! Give to Him glorious praise!" Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sing praises to you and sing praises to your name. 
So this um, kind of echoes the first verse of, of um, Psalm 100. Uh, all nations come before God. And it, it, it reflects God's universal sway, his universal control. Um, but note how joyful the psalmist uh, says we should be when we think about this. It's mentioned several times uh, just in these first few verses. He draws attention to the content of what our worship should be. It should be the glory of God's name. And he draws attention to the quality that our worship should have. And it's glorious praise. So the content is the glory of God's name. And the quality is that it should be glorious, quality, fulsome praise. And he says that the whole world should uh, acknowledge God's deeds. And some of the hymns that I've chosen sort of just touch upon some of the the, the, the aspects of, of, of history and creation, time and eternity, um, where we see God at work um, leading up to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and uh, Jesus' lordship. So, all in the world, the whole creation must acknowledge God's deeds uh, in history, Looking, uh, thinking about Israel and um, the exodus and the exile, um, the restoration of Israel, uh, the the ministry of Christ, the growth of the early church, um, and it, the growth of the church, um, Christ's body throughout the world. So you can see throughout history there are innumerable and huge, great uh, things that God has done, uh, and, and how he's, he's, he's directed the whole course of history. So the whole world should see that and acknowledge that. that and all must also acknowledge God's deeds in, in salvation, in, 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 uh, in creating us. Uh, in weeping over us and in loving us and in, and in sending, sending his son to die and to be raised again uh, that all who believe in him may be saved. So there's, there's the great sweep of history, there's a great sweep of salvation, there's the great um, testimony um, of the lives of sinners. Sinners become saints. Um, poor and needy sinners, fallen people, uh, broken in so many ways yet called into a loving relationship with God through uh, his, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and also in our lives, although we were far off, uh, weak-willed and unloving, uh, in many ways we still are, yet we're called and redeemed and uh, called to live lives to glorify God. So there's so many things which we should uh, look at, which the world should, should see uh, and should be called to believe uh, on God through history and in salvation, in the lives of his people, um, the lives of well, the life of the church, and also uh, in individuals' lives as well. So there's so much which the whole world should see and should glorify God for. First, uh, the, the second part of verse three says, "So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you." We touched on that uh, in one of the hymns, um, "Lord Giver, Sword Bearing Deity." So there is uh, a strong element in which. Um, people need to be brought uh, to God uh, cringing because they rebelled against him um, and salvation in, in, involves holiness uh, God can't ignore it he can't ignore sin he can't ignore rebellion uh, he can't admit anyone or anything which is unholy and which is unrepentant and which doesn't uh, you know, bow, bow the knee uh, to God salvation involves judgment yeah. In our own hearts, we, we know this. We know that justice requires uh, judgment. Um, holiness requires judgment. You know, we feel righteous indignation, or indignation rather, when, when bad people do, you know, when things happen to, to, to people apparently quite randomly. 
and our hearts cry out for some, you know, for some judgment against against these people. There's been plenty of even in the last week or two where we think, why, you know, that's such an evil thing to, to, to have done, you know, shootings or children getting, you know, really badly hurt and so on. And and everybody, even non-believers, will cry out for, for judgment, um, you know, for, for justice to be done. And why should it be any less so with a holy God? Salvation involves triumph. It involves victory over those who war against God and against his people. So this is why we read that um, your enemies come cringing to you. So great is your power. But also salvation, of course, involves uh, huge mercy. It involves forgiveness. It, it, it involves grace. Um, it involves God not treating us as our rebellion deserves, uh, but uh, in, being, in being shown uh, great grace. So there are these you know, really important aspects of, 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 of salvation that we need to re- recognise. It does involve, it does you know, mean that enemies come cringing to God, yet they'll have their heads lifted uh, and, be, and be forgiven if they cry out. Verse 4, all the earth uh, worships you and sing praises to you, they sing praises to your name, which is a, a refrain, which is like a repeat of, of, um, of the first two verses. All earth, all creation uh, will come, every knee must bow and every tongue will confess uh, that God is Lord of all. So then, we move from um, a world's homage to God, we're moving a bit closer to home now, we're moving to um, a nation's story. This is where moving in, in a sense from the whole world to the many. Um, think about Google Earth coming in. Um, so verse 5 reiterates verse 3 and God's awesome deeds. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds. Uh, verse 3 kind of repeats uh, verse 3. How awesome are your deeds? And so this is now um, the psalmist uh, inviting us to to remember the, the Exodus uh, and coming into the Promised Land. He talks about the sea being turned into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. That, that may well be um, the Red Sea and and um, the River Jordan. And so these are events which are rooted in Israel's history um, and which is kind of the history of the whole world as well because so much of what God has shown and revealed and done has been through the people of Israel. And there's a pattern like this um, in, in the cross and the resurrection of God's saving acts. And it speaks of deliverance. So the psalmist is talking about um, how the people of Israel, how the many have been uh, liberated from slavery um, in, in, in Egypt, into the promised land. They've been um, converted from strangers to having their own home, their own land. They've been converted from following the false gods of Egypt to following and to, and to cleaving to the true God. And this is something which is reflected in the lives of Christian believers, how we're de- delivered from, from bondage to freedom. We're delivered from uh, works to faith. We're delivered from being outcasts to being accepted. We're be- delivered from being dead in our sins and dead in our false beliefs to, to life and, and to faith. And so like Israel... We're delivered from fear, from death, from judgment, and we should invite the world to come see what God has done uh, in our lives and in our ministry, uh, be it at work or be it in our families, be it in our relationships, be it uh, in our dealings. Uh, He rules, and we should not fear 
what people think or what they will do ultimately uh, or what or what they will say the rebellious against god will not win let not the rebellious exalt themselves verse 7 their end is is known and it is clear it is clear and so we we know uh, how the people of israel have been delivered they're delivered uh, through the by, by the sea being turned into dry land they were they were delivered by the river uh being stopped and being able to, to cross on foot and they are now rejoicing in him and uh, we should um, r- recognise that, that our deliverance is through the atoning life and death and resurrection of Christ as it is uh, for all believers as it is for all of God's people and this is our way back from the wilderness of unbelief um, to our lives in the, in the promised land uh, which, which God uh, is giving us there's a further example of the pattern of um, God's saving acts in the in the next uh, few verses. Um, verses eight onwards, uh, a nation's trial. Bless, O God, our people. Bless our God, O people. This is from verse eight. Let the sound of His praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our foot slip. For you, O God, have tested us; you have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of of abundance. So this starts this um, this stanza starts with another call to to bless and to praise God. God sustained Israel even when everything appeared to be uh, hopeless. Uh, He has kept our soul among the living even when Israel appeared on the edge of falling yet God did not let them slip ultimately um, and this this talk of our, of our foot slipping nearly slipped um, it's reflected of course in Psalm 73 a few verses ahead I don't know if you've come across Faith on Trial by Martin Lloyd-Jones I read it many years ago it's an excellent book um, re- really recommend it I might be able to dig it out uh, from the bookshelf somewhere um, it's a really, really uh, amazing book. Very, very helpful. So um, there he, he expounds uh, Psalm 73. Um, and I'll just read the first couple of verses because um, verses from this reflect um, what we're talking about in Psalm 66. So Psalm 73, the first two verses, where uh, a psalm of Asaph, where he writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, I had nearly lost my foothold. And we come back to Psalm 66, verse 9. Uh, God has not let our feet slip. So even when they um, were on the edge of slipping into sin and having uh, hard thoughts against God, uh, in Psalm 73 he talks about envy and the arrogant and the rich who appear to have easy lives. Everything goes well for them. But actually, they're in slippery places. Those who are arrogant and, and, and are without God, they are the ones uh, who are in slippery uh, places, who are in a perilous place. Um, in, in Psalm 18, uh, sorry, Psalm um, 73, verse 18, I'll just read that one verse. Um, after reflecting on all, all of this, the psalmist writes, Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast, that, you cast them down to ruin. Um, he goes into the sanctuary of God and he understands their final destiny. So, what the psalmist is saying is that even though 
our feet appear to slip, yet God will sustain us. No matter how circumstances appear, God will ultimately keep his people. And the, the parallel between the two Psalms is that God's sustaining arm, through faith and through our obedience, uh, will sustain us. Verses 10 to 12, I'll just um, look at those again, back to Psalm 66. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you brought us to a place of of abundance. So he writes here about the the great strife which the people have endured. um, But God's presence in the midst of that. And God's presence in the midst of the strife is as marvellous as our delivery. These verses probably refer to the Exodus. Um, They may refer to the defeat by the Assyrians or the Babylonians and being sent into exile. Whichever way, it talks about a huge traumatic uh, time of of trial and danger for the people of Israel. Um, And yet, it was all for a purpose. And and trial and tribulation and difficulties for believers are all for a purpose. It's to test and try us like silver. Why is um, silver tested and tried? It's, It's done so to refine it. Um, and believers were refined by difficulties uh, and were made more mature. Um, silver is purified to be made more precious and to be made more holy. Um, silver is trusted and tried to, to strengthen it and to make it more resilient. And again, this is uh, a great benefit for us and for the people of Israel from the trials uh, which, they, which they had. Ultimately, to make more useful, to make more valuable to make more glorifying to God and more useful for his purposes and so in the same way that that God um, tested and tried the people of Israel so uh, he may do so with believers um, uses circumstances to build character uh, to build Christian character and maturity uh, and to inspire our prayers and to make them more meaningful so the psalmist is, is talking about the difficulties that they've been through. We, we've been brought into a net. We've had a, a crushing burden laid upon us. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Um, and that there's a very important word at the beginning of the second part, of verse 12, yet, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. This is the whole purpose, uh, to bring people out from um, a difficult and a bad place, remote from him, to bring us into a place of abundance and closeness to him to bring us into a place of grace and faith and blessing and of nourishment for our souls. And we realise that uh, we enjoy life and security as a gift from God. Not as, a, not as a right, but as a gift from God. I'll just read a few verses from James chapter 4, verse 13, uh, where he writes, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. And so our prayer should be that um, if the Lord's will wills, we will do this or that. And that's what our life should be, should be a reflection of God's will being worked out in our lives, wherever that takes us. Thinking now about the fourth um, stanza, the fourth 
part of this psalm, verses 13 to 15. We're moving in now from the all to the many, now uh, into the one. And we read um, from verse 13. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered, and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of, of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. So having viewed the whole world and Israel, we're zooming in now on the one individual, the psalmist. This is more like um, Google Street View than, than the world, than Google, than Google Earth. Um, some think that, some commentators think that um, this verse, verse 13, starting out will come, is the beginning of a different psalm, which somehow got jammed together with the first part of the psalm, um, because it, it, it did shift so much, you know, from, from all to, to Israel, and then suddenly to I, to the first person singular. Um, other commentators will say, no nonsense, it was all written as, as, uh, as one psalm, because we know that God is concerned, as concerned for the one as for the many. So why shouldn't this follow on um, as, being, as being the same psalm? Just draw our attention to Matthew 18, verse, verses 12 to 14, where Jesus' parable says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So, it's, it's, it's perfectly uh, normal and usual and expected um, that, that this psalm should then move to the first person, the individual. Uh, he speaks of his desire to be obedient and to keep promises to God. Verses 13 to 14 remind us of good resolutions people often make when in trouble. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. Uh, and that which my lips uttered, I will offer to you burnt offerings. So he is talking about things which um, he, he intends to do um, to show his obedience. And quite often people will think or say, if I get out of this pickle or out of this difficulty, if God delivers me from this, uh, I will do this or that, or I will stop doing uh, this or that. Um, sometimes think of Pharaoh, uh, when Moses wanted him to let the people go, he would say yes, then no, yes, then no, and then he'd repent and then, um, and then change his mind. So, um, you know, people often say, I'll do things, and they make promises, um, but then quite often quickly uh, go back on them. But for the psalmist, it's different. Um, it's a holy promise, it's a holy duty, uh, which makes him want to bring sacrifice and offering to God. Verse 15 suggests a more chastened attitude <coughs> to reflect the, the gravity of the deliverance that is had. I will offer you burnt offerings of fattened animals. So he, he recognises that um, he, he's got a great story to tell. Um, he he's, he's personally feels a great sense of deliverance and of gratitude to God, um, but with an element of, of, of chastening as well because of the nature of the sacrifice which he's bringing. And we need to ask, does our response to God re reflect this as well? Does it reflect that uh, we have a, a great sense of deliverance um, from, from death and from despair uh, to life and to, and to hope? So we think of our deliverance um, as 
as being turned from marching away to running towards God. Uh, and remember that God, what he wants uh, is obedience, not, not sacrifice. Um, Samuel told Saul this um, in 1 Samuel 15, um, when Saul had done something which wasn't what he'd been directed to do. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So although the psalmist talks uh, about, um, about sacrifice here, um, he's making holy promises of obedience to God as well, and that should be our response to make. It's a challenge to us uh, that we should make uh, obedience to God our, our priority. Moving now into the final part of the psalm, um, verses 16 to 20, which I call One Man's Story. I'll just read that again from verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cry to him with my mouth and high praises on my tongue. If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So this is the, the most personal closing part of the psalm. Um, he's calling out his, his life as a testament to God's care for his soul. Um, the words that he uses, come and hear, reflects uh, what we read in verse 5, come and see. So he's inviting the reader, the worshipper, to come and see God's works. Um, first of all, in the life of the nation of Israel. Uh, and now he's inviting this same examination uh, in his own life as well. Um, come and, come and uh, hear, and I will tell what God has done for my soul. Uh, he invites scrutiny, as it were, of his life, uh, holding it up as a testimony to God. He's not saying he's perfect, he's not saying he's got everything sorted out, of course not, uh, neither would we. Uh, but nevertheless, it isn't about, look at how good I am, it's saying, uh, I'll, let me tell you what God has done for my soul. So imperfect as we still are, broken as we still are, yet God is working in our souls. That's the, that's the, that's the amazing thing. And that's what he's uh, calling people to come and see. And really, um, there's nothing to stop us from doing the same, to say, come and hear, uh, and I will tell you what God has done for my soul. This is what we should be doing. We um, usually don't uh, say to people, come and see, um, that usually don't invite scrutiny of our lives. Um, because, why not? Because... Uh, we know, we know that we're fallen and we're imperfect, uh, that we're hardly a great advert. Um, to say, uh, come and come and see, may sound a bit holier than, than, than now. I've got it sorted out, you haven't. Um, you know, look at me, aren't I fine? Um, or we may not have a, a, a great backstory of, of being called from ruination and from you know, terrible uh, sin. It may be more sort of gradual childhood thing when we came to God. Um, but nevertheless, um, all of us have cried to God. All of us have, have, have worshipped God uh, if, we're his, if we are his people. And, and this should reflect on God and not on us. So we should have the, the same bravery, the same intent um, that um, to, to say, look, come and see uh, what, what God has done uh, in, in my life. Um, then I just want to move on to another slide I haven't shown you yet. 
uh, just to ask, is this is this your story too? Um, he, he he becomes highly personal. He looks uh, in his own heart. Uh, he talks about, come and see what God's done for my soul. I cry to him with my mouth. Um, and then he, and it becomes highly, you know, really personal. Uh, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Um, but truly God has listened. And I've read sort of two or three different commentators about this to sort of see, well, is he saying, look, aren't I amazing? I don't cherish uh, iniquity in my heart. You know, I'm pure. Therefore, God must listen to me. Or is he saying more along the lines, look, um, if God had been anything other than what he is, he would not have listened to me because I cherish you know, iniquity in my heart. I'm not perfect. I'm not good. Um, and I, I prefer um, the latter. On the one hand, we cannot cherish uh, sin if we expect to be heard. If we're embracing God, and not, if, we're, sorry, if we're embracing sin and not repenting of it, we can't very well expect to be heard. Um, but the Lord still listens. He can overcome the sin in our hearts. We, we don't claim, we can't claim perfection or righteousness of our own. Um, and it, 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 it's, it, it's God's superabundance of grace that uh, even though we, we do have iniquity in our hearts, even though we may, the Lord may be within his rights not to listen to us as a result, yet truly God has listened and he has attended to the voice of my prayer. So I think this, this is saying, um, despite um, being far from perfect, this, you know, despite being you know, still, still broken in so many ways, yet God overcomes that um, and does listen to us. This isn't a matter of being good enough to be heard, for we cannot, but of him overcoming the sin in our hearts and overcoming the poorness of our faltering prayer um, to, to hear us still. So above all, he doesn't reject uh, his persevering, seeking, humble child, nor does he remove his steadfast love, which preserves and means that he sticks closer than a brother. Um, truly God has listened. He has attended. He has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So I think this is the psalmist saying, and I think we can say this, that um, even though um, there is still uh, brokenness and sin in our hearts, yet God overcomes that. Um, and here's our, four, our poor faltering prayer. He doesn't, he doesn't snuff out uh, a smoldering wick. He doesn't break a broken reed. Uh, he, will, he will still coax that and um, cherish it with his steadfast love. He sticks closer than a brother. And how do we see his steadfast love uh, towards us? We see it uh, in the giving uh, and, uh, of his son, uh, his life, his obedience, even unto the cross, and the mighty life-giving resurrection of his son uh, for us all, if we are uh, his people. So I'd ask again, is, is this our story? Can we embrace this psalm and make it our own?